Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Listeners, I am here. And Sarah is like jazz hands excited. So I'm just going to apologize in advance. I am. I'm like, I'm going to be gesticulating so much during this podcast recording. I can, I can like feel your enthusiasm. And it's like, I'm on the brink of giving me a headache already. But I asked for this topic. So I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> um. Before we kind of jump into things, I think maybe if I can give a little bit of a background on why this topic is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it in passing or not, but um, my mother is adopted and I have spent my entire adult life um, not knowing anything about my genetics on my mom's side. And it's even scarier for my mom, obviously, to have absolutely no idea if things like celiac disease or cancer run in her family. Right. And she last year did a 23andMe and Ancestry.com DNA kit for Christmas. And, um, We'll put links in the show notes to both of those because Sarah and I have talked about them before and we think they're really cool and great and amazing and all that jazz. But um, we've talked about it from the scientific perspective of learning more about yourself. And we haven't talked about it from the very unique perspective that my mom actually found her birth family by utilizing these kits. And it's been kind of a crazy year. Um she thought both of her parents had passed and that she was, as most adopted children are, an only child. And she found out that her father is still alive and lives half an hour from her. And Whoa. she has two full-blood relative sisters who were both also put up for adoption, who she has found this year. And she also has four other siblings that were half siblings, one of whom has passed. So she now has five sisters and a father who she did not have this time last year because of these DNA kits. So, um, as you can imagine, that has been quite an interesting thing to put into our lives this year. Definitely, Um, one of the reasons that things can be so stressful because even good things and meeting new people can, you know, create, I don't want to say create chaos, but it, you know, it, it adds a whole new level to your life that you didn't really have before. And it's a lot of change to process at once. And one of the things that I have learned through the course of this is that cancer runs really strongly on my mom's side of the family. And, here, I thought that I didn't have, like, much cancer in my family at all, and turns out almost every single person on my mom's side of the family has, like, had cancer, had multiple cancers, died of cancer. So, um, and then the other side of that that's really kind of interesting is uh, my mom's sisters are about a year apart. They are really, really close in age, and... Um, My mom is the youngest, so the oldest is a little bit older than her, but the middle sister is really close in age to both of them. And they were raised completely separately, knowing nothing about, you know, the existence of others. And yet when they met, they had, you know, so much in common, things like their laughter or um, interests or hobbies. Um, One of the things that I have talked about on the show is that my ancestors and my father's side were farmers and it is the reason I thought that I was inherently drawn to food and farming and all that kind of stuff 
Um, but turns out on my mom's side of the family, they were also farmers. They had chicken farms in Maryland and, um, Maryland's like right around the corner from us. I know it sounds like another state, but it's like 20 minutes. Um, and that's how they actually kind of met and knew each other as they all had property, um, next to one another and were farmers. And so, it's been really fascinating to meet people who, like my mom's oldest sister owns a farm and her daughter does food blogging. <laughs> so oh, wow. It's, um, it's really crazy. And it's, um, it's been fascinating on so many levels. And it's something that, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to go too much into detail about just because I respect you know, the, the family's privacy and I don't, I, you know, I didn't ask their permission to tell their story. There's a very detailed story about it all, as you can imagine, um, how all of crazy this would have been for everybody to find each other after all this time. But, um, what I wanted to talk about, what, well, first of all, I wanted to share that story. I've been kind of waiting to tell it. Um, but the reason that I've been waiting is because I wanted to talk about, the science of how, like, all, like, this is just a huge, like, mind explosion, right? Like, all of this, both biology as well as epigenetics that are now kind of thrown into our lives with different kind of information that we can access in um, a variety of, of different platforms and people and, and all that kind of stuff. So I am looking forward to you kind of breaking down what epigenetics is and, and all of this kind of science. There's a particular article I sent your way um, that we can put a link in the show notes, but it was essentially, um, specifically the article that I sent you was about like a- adoption and epigenetics, but then there was a scientific um, link that it was based on that I knew that you would geek out over. I, I really did. I, I, um, I have to admit that this is a topic that I, I just like, I'll probably still be reading about it tomorrow. Like, I think you've just like started me like digging into a new field of science. That's, that's really <laughs> fascinating. Um, let's start where you started me, which was, um, you know, this idea that, uh, the, that adoption itself can be an epigenetic controller. So let's, let's, talk about just what epigenetics are first. Um, we have genes, right? And we pass on our genes to our children, right? We get half of our genes from our mom, half of our genes from our dad. And genes are like the roadmap for our bodies. So they actually literally are exactly the directions to produce every single protein in our bodies, right? Every single structure in our bodies, the directions for that is our DNA. What epigenetics is, it sort of, it means like side, like beside genetics. And it was the discovery that genes can be turned on or off without actually, or altered without actually changing the DNA in such a way that it changes what proteins are being made. So it can change all of these incredible pathways in our body and that a variety of things can actually turn DNA on or off. Um, They can be related to environment, to toxin exposure, to diet, to lifestyle. And then this incredible discovery from like the 90s that our epigenetics are heritable, which means we actually inherit not just our DNA from our parents, but we also inherit some of this signaling of what genes are turned on or turned off from our parents, and we can pass that on to our children. And so these things that are, you know, genes, genes that are turned on or off based on diet, based on lifestyle factors, based on toxin exposure, based on the chemistry of strong emotions, um, that those things can then be passed on. And the, the field of research is called behavioral epigenetics. It's absolutely fascinating. And we'll definitely make sure to put a link to um, the uh, Discover Magazine article that was uh, linked to in the article on adoption that you sent me. And then also I can I can provide some other sciencey links to, to throw in there, some of the other um, review articles that I've read today. But what's fascinating is this idea that 
um, psychological experiences, emotional experiences are also epigenetic controllers. So I think we, we talk in the paleo community relatively frequently about, you know, one of the, the benefits of a paleo diet and lifestyle is the epigenetic control. So we are literally controlling uh, proteins by controlling gene expression that correlate with better health, right? Things like downregulating inflammation, uh, improving insulin sensitivity, um, changing neurotransmitter regulation. Those are those are all things that can be changed through epigenetic control. It's not the only way to change those things, but it's one of the ways that diet and lifestyle benefits us. With this idea that the emotional experiences surrounding adoption can actually cause um, some epigenetic changes in in the brain and and that can actually mold in many ways who you are. Um, the, the science that started all of that idea was actually some really basic experiments looking at the effects of basically nature versus nurture. And it was done in rodents. And what they, they started off with observing that um, rodents that had very attentive mothers that were, were grooming their pups uh, had those pups when they grew up had more resilience to stress. And the pups from mothers who weren't as attentive, when those pups grew up, they were more stressed out. They had more anxiety behaviors. And that's like a classic like, oh, well, clearly the mother was paying more attention and that's an emotional thing, right? That's the the nurture part of this whole piece of the puzzle. But what these researchers did was they applied some of these new ways of measuring epigenetic changes. And what they actually discovered was changes in the uh, cortisol pathways and the stress pathways um, so that these pups from inattentive mothers that were not getting, you know, groomed, they were sort of being neglected, um, that they actually, they could, they could measure it at a DNA level that there was these epigenetic changes that meant that they were more susceptible to stress. And then the way that they actually tested, like, is this, like, is this an epigenetic, is this partly inherited or is this purely from this, you know, caring, they switched the litters. So they'd take the pups from a, a mother who was inattentive and give them to an attentive mother and a mother who was attentive and give them to an inattentive mother. And they were actually able to show that that nurturing in this early phase of these rodents' lives caused these epigenetic changes uh, independent of DNA. So independent of what was being inherited that made them more... Um, more resilient to stress and actually meant that they were more attentive mothers. And so they, they've actually expanded this work. There's been a lot of very similar studies done. They've looked not just at stress pathways, but they've looked at other important proteins. There is uh, also an epigenetic trigger on estrogen, which uh, in many ways controls uh, maternal instincts. And it just, it, it's really exploded in the last um sort of 10, 15 years um, into this huge field of study looking at um, basically what it means is that nurture affects nature. So it's not nature versus nurture. It's like nature affects nurture affects nature. So actually, you know, having these positive experiences as uh, a, a baby or a child can actually change uh, DNA to make us more resilient people, more optimistic people, have better social skills, be more instinctively better parents. And like they've done some human studies to, to sort of back up, although most of the studies have been done in rodents, they've done some human studies to kind of back up a lot of these ideas, which is very, very fascinating because when you flip that coin and you talk about adoption, you've got both sides of the coin. So you can say that the um, fairly traumatic experience of being, uh, you know, given away 
may change, have an epigenetic, you know, changes that might, um, might create some, you know, depression or anxiety or, or some other, uh, traits that are, you know, just make life harder for that person as they become an adult. But then you can flip the coin and say, you know, being brought up in a very nurturing environment actually can compensate for a lot of those changes. Um, so the, the research into how, um, Adoption specifically impacts epigenetics. Is it, there's little tiny bits and pieces, but it's it's not really a robust field yet. Um, but there's interesting some researchers that are suggesting that um, one of the things that adopting parents actually need to be aware of is that there are these epigenetic triggers, and that a lot of bonding, a lot of physical touch, um, you know, a lot of attention is actually really important for that those uh, children, those babies and children, to be able to sort of compensate for epigenetic um, changes that are not desirable based on their initial experiences in life or even in the womb. And so it's it's a fascinating field of study, and it's it's really like it's it's really grown beyond. Um, even just looking at, uh, you know, the few genes happening in the brain. So there's actually been some studies that have looked at, like, how many genes change based on your childhood experiences. And it's it's literally thousands. So we don't even understand what all of them do. Some of these changes could be very, very beneficial. Some of them could be detrimental. So some of them might reduce risk of disease. Some of them might increased risk of disease. Um, and so it's really muddy. There's some uh, pharmaceutical companies that are basically looking at ways of doing basically what would be called like an epigenetic clean slate. So you basically remove all of the um, molecules that are suppressing genes in the whole body. But the problem is, is that there's maybe some bad genes that are being suppressed. So some of that suppression is actually potentially a good thing. So it's it's quite complex. Um, what I think is fascinating is the idea that um, that certain um, I don't know if character traits quite the right word, but but traits that we feel are inherited. So uh, things like uh, addiction behavior or um, depression or um, certain phobias, right? Like you can point to your other family members who have this, that it's maybe not an actual genetic inheritance, but an epigenetic inheritance, which is to me very interesting because you can then, you can postulate that by addressing that particular, you know, set of controls on those genes and maybe through diet and lifestyle, through therapy, through mindfulness practice, whatever it is that you can potentially not just reverse those uh, sort of negative challenges for yourself, but then that you could break that cycle in terms of inheritance. And then you could pass on um, non-silenced genes or silenced bad genes to, to your children. So it's a really fascinating field of study. One of the things that I didn't realize was how still fairly controversial um, – the the idea of heritable epigenetics is um and one of the reasons is is that during pregnancy um if the, whatever the mother's exposed to the fetus is also exposed to but also uh women are you know our eggs develop while we're still in utero so the um eggs for the third generation are are developing. So they're also exposed to whatever those factors are. And so there's some researchers who believe that it looks to be heritable, but really what it is, is it's like three generations being exposed at the same time. But there is some other research looking at um, heritable epigenetics in the fourth generation. And it's just, it, it's not like super cut and dried because it's really, really challenging 
to measure, right? They're literally measuring these tiny little molecules stuck onto the side of DNA. Um, And it's one of the reasons why when you do a genetic test, a genetic test doesn't tell you what genes are turned on or turned off. So they tell you your genetics, not your epigenetics. And um, and we can't, we don't have like tests now, like testing for epigenetics, like what's actually turning on or off your genes is a much more complicated test and it's, it's much more susceptible to error. So that's making this entire field much more challenging to figure out all the little differences. And right now what researchers are really focused on is really just understanding the mechanisms. So not even necessarily thinking about heritable epigenetics versus non-heritable and what the evolutionary mechanism for that might be. But they're just trying to figure out like what molecule sticks onto where and turns what off or turns what on, right? Like it's really still in that trying to work out all of the chemical details and the chemical reaction details of this process. But when you think about epigenetics from an evolutionary perspective, what it actually implies is an ability to adapt on a population scale over a very short period of time to environmental stressors. So it implies, right, if you're, if you can silence genes or turn on genes based on diet or based on lifestyle, for example, a, a shift in climate or a change in some type of uh, access to, to food supply, and then you can have some big, you know, epigenetic change that turned on or turned off really, really quickly, then you can have that change applied to the whole population rather than having to go through your Darwinian selection, right, and, and survival of the fittest, which takes several generations to be able to to manifest. So there really is this very, very um, logical reason why we would have epigenetic control from an evolutionary perspective. So all in all, I mean, just a, a fascinating study, um, fascinating field. It's hard to take that information and draw conclusions beyond, you know, it is really important to eat well. Um, you know, all of those studies that have been done in terms of diet and epigenetics all look at malnutrition. So they all look at protein deficiency, vitamin deficiency, um, high intake of of unhealthy fats and they can show actually that epigenetic controls can even be different in different organs so what's happening epigenetically in the liver can be different than what's happening epigenetically in the kidneys but it's still that that even that is so like the information right now is so surface like there's not really enough to be able to dive in there and really dig deeply other than like B vitamin deficiency is probably very, very bad for epigenetic control. Um, malnutrition, famine, uh, uh, way overeating is probably very, very bad for epigenetic control. And uh, living under stress is obviously very, very bad for epigenetic control. So we can kind of, you know, reinforce a lot of the ideas that we already hold near and dear in the paleo community of nutrient density, anti-inflammatory diets, um, you know, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight, reducing stress. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen any studies looking at sleep, but I can, since inadequate sleep is a stress, we can roll it in there. Since being sedentary is a stress, we can roll that in there. Um, You know, I think it, it reinforces the the concepts that all of those things are really really important and it also reinforces the idea of um mental wellness right so we we don't talk about this a lot on the show but there are limitations to what diet and lifestyle can do and there are you know certain things where having a counselor or a therapist um or uh, a, a psychiatrist, right? Having having the, this outside expertise to help us, you know, develop um, uh, skill sets for dealing with things that have happened in our past or processing what's happened in our past, understanding it in a different way. Those are things that are still extremely useful that um, can potentially change our epigenetics and. Um, we can't necessarily address those things with diet and lifestyle. So that 
that little piece was was sort of wrapped into to I, I think the take home message all all of this and then the other the other take home that I got is I've got to start I got to hug my kids more like it was like oh oh so so physical touch and, and attention is super important when you're a child I guess I, I need to up my game there I really 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 like physical touch with my children and like <laughs> and, not, and I completely I realized as I was saying that that it was you know potentially come across creepy but I just find that like hugging them and being close to them gives me more um positive energy in general and so um I know that the the younger boys are totally open to it and uh the the older one will will roll his eyes but he'll also lean in and actually hug me so um <laughs> I think nice. it's a, a little bit of a, a preteen, you know, mom kind of thing. But I think that's, um, uh, it's kind of interesting to me. It was some of the things that I had read about epigenetics. There was this uh, particular article that I read a long time ago about um, the factors in what is turned on and remembered in the cells can actually withhold I think it said three generations back. So there were, in this particular article that I was reading, um, facets of today's generation that have epigenetics turned on in a, as a result of stressful events such as the Holocaust. And that like there are uh, particularly stressors and fears that are triggered by those particular cellular memories. And it was like a scientific research girl that I was reading. And I was like, what, what, like, what, how, how is this mechanism even working? Um, and so in this idea of, uh, all of this new family and all of the components of what does that bring? And particularly, you know, I, I'm sure every person who knows someone that's adopted will not be surprised to hear that that's a stressful thing. I mean, it was, um, it's stressful, good, it's stressful, bad to, you know, like all, all of the different kinds of things that can, can be addressed, but it's definitely a biologically not inherent, right? Like inherently you are nurtured by the person who grew you in their womb and you know, their touch and you know, their smell and you know, their, um, voice and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so changing that I could, I could see would, would definitely be a mechanism, I guess, I'm kind of interested in some of the aspects of um, anything that you read related to nature versus nurture and um, what what you're seeing in the science as as being kind of inherently to biology versus what some of us might think of as being like, oh, I learned that from my parents or being raised a certain way. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. I mean, I haven't seen any papers that have been able to quantify, right? Like how much of this is nature versus nurture. And let's, let's assume, let's, let's put epigenetic control under nature, even though that's driven by nurture. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's sort of separate that out. So if it causes an epigenetic change, or it's something that you inherited in your DNA, let's call that nature. And if it's something that's related to for example, oxytocin release when you're when you're enjoying physical touch, right? Those those that will put under uh, under nurture or um, developing certain neural pathways through learning, right? In a nurturing environment, right? That would be under nurture compared to something that you could actually pass on to the next generation in nature. Um, it is sort of important to sort of emphasize that there's there really does seem to be a tremendous number of genes that are affected based on experience. So there are studies, for example, that have compared the genetics of um, like Russian orphans growing up in orphan orphanages versus Russian children that were raised by their biological parents and looking at the difference in terms of the epigenetic controls. And so what they're actually looking at is, is how many of the genes have these molecules attached to them. They're actually methyl groups that are silencing the, those genes. Um, 
and there was a really interesting paper that compared um, compared people who were on the opposite sides of the socioeconomic scale. So looking at people who were either very, very rich or very, very poor at some point in their lives and showed that there were stronger epigenetic single signals if they experienced those socioeconomic extremes during childhood compared to during adulthood. Um, and that those people who experienced one or two of the extremes during childhood that there's literally like over 6,000 genes that are affected epigenetically um, by those that experience, right? So that – I mean there's a lot of things that come, come with those two extremes socioeconomically that are from a nurture umbrella standpoint, but they're actually impacting the expression of 6,000 different genes. So they're changing nature. So one of the things that these studies have looked at is what they call the like clean slate. So not all of these epigenetic changes are necessarily passed on to the next generation, but some of them are. And as you alluded to, there's studies showing that they can definitely go three generations, um, there's potentially even four generations. So that's really interesting. So there seems to be some mechanism for uh, basically wiping all of these chemicals that are attaching to DNA and actually making it, you know, turning them on or turning them off, basically, uh, wiping those off of the DNA in creation of, of, the, of a, a, a zygote, right? So there seems to be this process for sort of clean slate, but then – a whole pile of genes, the epigenetic controls kind of bypass this process. And so they know that there is a collection of genes in which the epigenetic controls are not very easily inherited. And then there's a collection of genes in which the epigenetic controls are very easily inherited. So in that case, the experience of how our parents grew up or how our grandparents grew up can impact our resilience to stress or our susceptibility to depression or our susceptibility to addiction, right? So there's there's this piece of it that can be inherited, and then there's this other piece that seems to get wiped clean for each generation. But I think um, where, where – there's not really a solid answer to your question, but I think is really – I think important to, to emphasize is that we seem to be extremely susceptible to epigenetic changes in childhood. So there's um, a bunch of researchers that are looking at just what changes within your lifetime. So how your genes get turned on or turned off as a child and how that can impact your health as an adult. And that's sort of like one field of study. And then there's this separate field of study that is like, how can what genes get turned on or turned off during your lifetime impact your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. And those those two fields of study are, are fairly separated. So I think what's really actually better understood is how, how incredibly susceptible we are to genetic or epigenetic modification in response to um, nurture-type experiences when we're children, and that that can actually impact our health uh, later on. And there's a variety of, you know, different types of, right, if um, if the mother has diabetes, the child ha is more likely to have diabetes, right? There's, there's a bunch of those types of links. Uh, what's really fascinating is that a whole pile of known cancer risk genes are controlled epigenetically, even like BRSA. Um, can be controlled epigenetically, not necessarily. You can also inherit a mutation, but it can be um, also turned on through um, epigenetics and increase your risk of breast cancer. And that's really, really challenging to measure for. So there does seem to be a really, really strong signal from nurture changing nature in in our childhood and that that's then passed on and so it's sort of hard to separate and i think if you asked a science who, a scientist who like 
studied the epigenetics of how um, childhood experiences impacts disease risk as an adult, they would tell you that it's it's all epigenetics, right? It's, it's all nature. And I think if you still talked to a psychologist, they would still tell you, you know, no, it's like your emotional experiences, you know, change your neurotransmitter regulation, they change your neural pathways, right? They have all of these other experiences. Um, and they, they, they change your, you, you learn, right? Responses to stress, you learn emotional responses. And I think they would still tell you it was predominantly uh, nurture. But I think what's so fascinating about this field is that it completely blurs the lines between nature versus nurture. Like we have this constant conversation of, you know, did you, did you learn that or did you inherit that? And I think the, the major take home message from this entire field of study is that that nature and nurture are intertwined. Uh, our experiences through nurture impact our nature and we can pass that on to our children. And that, that I'm like, can you hear me nerding out over how cool that is? It's crazy. Cool. That's why when I found out, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is totally up Sarah's alley. But you were like writing a book. I know I was really busy. <laughs> I, I'm so I'm so glad that this was like still on the list of like Sarah like we should talk about this because I <laughs> I, I really like I um my you know I've had to do um like genetic sequencing and things as, as part of like my medical research we did a lot of um uh RNA sequencing more than more than DNA sequencing uh so you can sort of measure you know, expression of a gene by how much RNA there is there. And so it's always been something that's been like in my knowledge base, at least in terms of like practical use in a, in a medical research lab. Um, but epigenetics is something that's fairly new and not something that ever made it into my medical research. And so I, I first got interested in epigenetics actually watching a, I think it was like a Nova on epigenetics a couple of years ago. And, um, and it's always been something that I've wanted to read more about. And I, I as soon as you send me those articles, it just, I, I probably literally read, I don't know, like 20 articles on it because I was like, Oh, you know, every single thing would be like, Oh, in this little piece, like I want to, I want to understand more about this little piece and Oh, in this little piece. And I find the idea of, um, there's, there's nobody studied this. There's not a really good answer, but um, there's, there's two main types of chemicals that can be um, sort of stuck onto the side of DNA. Methyl groups will turn it off, and acetyl groups will turn it on. So um, th these are two of the the major types of of epigenetic controls. And when you say methyl group, like the very first thing I think about is like, what about people with MTHFR gene variants that make them poor methylators? And there's absolutely no, like, there's no information out there about whether or not having an MTHFR gene variant that impacts methylation makes it more or less likely for you to have uh, methylated DNA. But there is some research showing that if you're B vitamin deficient, you have, um, you can actually have one of two extremes. You can either be hypomethylated in terms of your DNA or hypermethylated in terms of your DNA. And then there's absolutely no, no research that actually then says what the implications of that are. So like, what does that so now? Like, what does that mean? Well, it's really complex. There's like thousands of genes that are controlled this way and we don't know what they all do. And sometimes turning things on is beneficial and sometimes turning things off is beneficial. And sometimes you just want it to be like whatever's normal and and so it's it's just one of those fields that I think over the next 10, 15, 20 years, as we, we really start to tease out the details, it's going to be something that we draw a lot of actionable information from. So we're going to be able to look at this information and go, okay, so the consequence of B6 deficiency or the consequence of stress in terms of epigenetic control is this and this and this, and it's going to help reinforce a lot of the um, sort of diet and lifestyle recommendations that are, are in like in paleo now, but also help inform the direction that paleo goes as we learn more information. So I think this is one of those like new fields because it's even it's linked to 
nutrigenomics, right? Like nutrigenomics is the study of how nutrition impacts gene expression. And I think that as these things provide us like so much more information, I, I, I think we're going to be able to, to, to take that information and, and use it to inform choices, which I think is really cool, but we're definitely a ways away from that now. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's interesting to me because some of the studies were not new, but I think what happened is the original study came out a while ago and then subsequently spawned off, you know, additional research because of how fascinating and how much of effect it was. And there's certainly, um, a biological and scientific perspective that I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated on the non-direct DNA side, right? Like it's essentially saying that the nurture part is also the nature part. Like, you know, and I, I think that's a fascinating perspective that we always hear the colloquials like, well, is it nature or is it nurture? And essentially if I could distill the show down into like a little nugget, it would be like, it's neither. And it's both all at the same, you know, like it's, it's that all of the things that affect your, your nature turn on mechanisms or off mechanisms in your biology. And as we move forward, um, you know, it's, it's a matter of like some science that's perceived now as being like, well, this happens if you're a mother who's pregnant. Are we going to learn that some of that is actual epigenetics or, th- you know what I mean? Like things that have occurred that might not have been in a control factor as much as people claim they were. Um, and that what we really need to be aware of is what we're doing in prior generations. I mean, the original articles I read, I was like, oh my gosh, the things that I did as, because I got pregnant really, I mean, not like super, I wasn't 16, but I was in my early (laughs) 20s. You know, I mean, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying like, for me, I was partying. I was, I was living a, a single girl in my 20s kind of lifestyle. And Matt and I lived together, but like I had just graduated college, like parenthood was not on my horizon. I love you, Cole, if you're listening to this, but he knows it was not like, you know, we sat down <laughs> and wrote out our vision board for the next 10 years and that was it. So I, you know, to me, I kind of look at it like, whoa, I was worried about the biological things that I was doing to my life, but what else kind of had I triggered around that time with the lifestyle that I was living, right? And so um, it's it's an interesting thing because my... It, bringing it kind of back to the the original story and the adaptions, you know, my my mom and her directly related um, two biological sisters, as I mentioned, were all very close in age, and the life that their mother was living would have been a very unique one for the time period. And I, I don't want to get into details, but like I do think that that had a significant factor into like their own individual personalities in their life and meeting them separately as women who are mature, you know, like they're not still forming themselves, right? Like they have adult children, um, was just fascinating to, to have conversations about the things that, um, did or did not happen in their lives and the, and, and, the different factors that they could potentially tie back to their genetics. And I think a lot of that is, yes, A, the the biology and the cancer and that kind of stuff that I talked about. But I do think that there is a, a large amount of factor from the epigenetic side that would have been a factor from that difficult life their mom was leading, the um, adoption process of that particular situation, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me to, I think we all have stories in our lives of like a difficult time in someone's life. And then you think, well, like if they had a child, like 
that child would then be affected by that particular situation, that that changes the structure of their biology in such a way that they could be affected, like their health could be affected. And I, you know, I wonder how much of like my mom having multiple autoimmune disorders and I mean, a lot, a lot of autoimmune disorders, um, cause we've talked about how many I have, <laughs> I get them all from my mom. <laughs> um, like how much of that it was triggered by, you know, the health of her, her stress, her mom, her mom's stress and all that kind of stuff, because we don't see it so directly in, in the, in the rest of her biological family, but we do see, um, other things that could trigger it, as you said, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, I don't know, it's hard to talk about without the details, but, um, I, like you, I'm not, I'm, I'm super jazzed and geeked out about it. Um, but from a, a little less of a scientific perspective, I think for me, it's, I'm always fascinated by how science affects behavior, how science affects culture, how science affects lifestyle. And it's one of the things that drew me to paleo to begin with. And I think this is another one of those things that's just kind of fascinating how much is there that we don't know about. You know, like they say all the time, science has not even skimmed the surface on what we're eventually going to know as humans. And these are the kinds of things that we find out that we just, we have no idea about, right? Like it's, yeah. and and you discover it and you're like, oh my gosh, you know? Well, it's, it's also... I think it's one of those ways of sort of emphasizing um, how exciting basic science can be. I mean, this is science for the sake of understanding biology, right? Like this is this is just there's so much valuable information that we can glean, but not until we thoroughly understand these these systems. So for the next decade or two, we need to fund science that is just about understanding the epigenetic controls, right? And what the implications for that are and what's heritable and what's not. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get on my full, like, we need more funding for basic sciences soapbox, but I do want to just bring that up because we're, we're at a point, this is a super new field of science. So, um, the idea of epigenetics dates back to the nineties, the first behavioral epigenetics paper was published in 2004, and since then, there's been about 55,000 peer-reviewed published studies on epigenetics, not just behavioral epigenetics, but epigenetics in general, which is, you know, enough that, you know, scientists understand a lot about, uh, you know, DNA methylation and acetylation, and, and like, there's a lot of the mechanistic stuff understanding understood there, but there's so much when you're talking about a gene being turned on or turned off and a collection of genes and like what that means for you and what other things might affect those genes that you might change as you grow up. Like there's, there's so much information out there that we need to understand. And what each paper can do is look at a tiny little piece of that puzzle. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, funding basic science through, through, uh, you know, grant research, not not industry funding, is is so important because we need to understand these systems in order to be able to have enough information to be able to draw conclusions in terms of how we should be living our lives. And I think that's ultimately what science is supposed to do. It's supposed to better our lives through technological advances or better our lives through uh, ed education and informing our day to day choices. And and this is like the prime example of how exciting this information is and, and why these types of studies need to be funded. Mic drop. Right. Well, thank you for yet again, diving into some fun science for us. Um, I, I, I have to admit, I, I really enjoyed this one. So yay. I enjoyed the other ones, but like, I really enjoyed this one. <laughs> I enjoy how happy I've made you. <laughs> you, you really have. You really have. This was like, this was such such a great like I, I literally was like in, in every space during my day finding something else to read. Thank well, you. Thank you for giving me such a, a fun, a fun project to research. That's okay. that's what I really want to say. And, you know, as um, on the on the personal side, thank you for 
for hearing bits and pieces of my story. That's not a whole story, but I hope that you guys can understand how crazy exciting this is for our family to have met so many new family members. And, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's been interesting. So sharing a bit about, you know, what we've learned, um, and, and more on the science side of that has, has been good as well. So thank you, Sarah, for, for diving in with me. And hopefully, uh, this was one that our listeners can share with anybody they know that, um, could be affected, especially by adoption, but we've also just talked about kind of, um, epigenetic factors in general and, and anybody that you know that might be interested sharing our podcast is the greatest gift that you can give to us as well as supporting it through the links, either in our blog posts or the sidebar of our blog. We talked about um, some different things in this episode and we will of course include the show notes at either the paleomom.com or our blog realeverything.com. Um, and thank you for tuning in. We will be back again next week with a special guest. So that's exciting. We haven't had a, I feel like we haven't had a guest in a while. No, we haven't. Well, I feel like, um, I just feel like we've been kind of in a groove together for a while. Like we got a lot of topics to cover. We got, we got life to live or we're, we're nailing it down. Um, and we try, well, not we try, we are here together every week for you, which makes it easier to not have to have a guest all the time as well. So just from a schedules coordination perspective, that's also easier <laughs> and for a, us. And a, and a, I'm tired. Can we record tomorrow? Flexibility yeah. standpoint. Yep, yep, yep. That's. Can't really do that with a guest. So. Might happen more often than you think. <laughs> um, every week. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this week though is, uh, next week will be an exciting guest, definitely worth having and worth arranging our schedules for. So, uh, definitely tune in and look forward to that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. I just had um, some of the Eating Evolved, like, hot chocolate, and so I'm feeling all... Yes. I'm, like, almost out. I need them to send me another canister. Hey, you guys, you're working. Is it, where's it going through? This one? Yeah. Everything you can hear me fine, Sarah? I can hear you fine. That was so funny. We were just like talking to each other. <laughs> Matthew's like still trying to fix like, it. He's like, he's like, wait a minute. You guys no. each other. <laughs> hey guys, you guys are talking to each other. Do you realize that I fixed it? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.